Thank you, Lauren. It's really a pleasure to be with you, all of you. Um, when I first was, when uh, you can hear me fine, right? Yes. When I first was uh, invited to, to speak and to join you guys um, through the Dean, I, I have to admit, I just turned it down <laughs> right away, in part because this week has been really crazy for uh, faculty everywhere. Um, I'm sure all of you are experiencing different work disruptions, and we've tried to take all of our instruction online. So. Um, just a lot of work kind of retooling everything. Uh, there's a lot of funny memes going around the internet about how it should be so easy to be working from home, <laughs> but it's really not so easy. And then of course, uh, as Lauren said, I have um, I have not only more of my children are home, like probably many of you here, but they're right outside the door. So if, uh, if anybody busts in, um, my apologies in advance, um, but our, um, our fearless journalist in South Korea has made that socially acceptable now. The, you know, the guy with the, the toddler coming in the room. So I feel like I'm in good company. Um, so it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult for economists or, um, you know, any kind of forecasters to talk about the um, implications of any kind of catastrophic event on the economy. What I'm going to try to do is kind of run through um, a little bit of a collated set of um, you know of of articles and and some of the thoughts that are out there in part because i you know these are some sources that i trust um and then i'm going to kind of give you the economist view which is you know as you're probably expecting it's going to sound callous um maybe maybe it'll sound callous um but uh but the trouble is that um uh as we're starting to hear from more places uh the <laughs> Um, okay, well, I'll just go ahead and start sounding callous. We need to be as worried about the economic consequences here as about the, the health consequences. And it's very possible that very quickly the economic consequences of uh, various measures, mitigation, which is what we'll call flattening the curve, and then the lockdowns that we're starting to see um, in a minute, I'll share my screen with you um, or a presentation I have. I'm um, in the lockdown that these kinds of measures might lead to um, not just a sort of a pro and a con. I mean, so I want to push this past sort of, gee, we have to weigh economics against human lives, and that sounds very unsavory. But the concern that I have and a lot of people have now is that the economic devastation can be so severe that will actually undermine our ability to care for people in need, right? So we will actually just not be able to pay for things. Um, and this is a sort of, these are, these are dire things, and it's just a serious topic. Um, so let me share my screen with you and run through a few things. Um, let's see what I can do here. Uh, here we go. Um, are you all are you all seeing my screen here? There we go. Okay. Um, so uh, we don't need that. Um, let me move this out of the way here. Right. So we know where we know where we sit. I don't want to bore you with things that you are all seeing on a daily basis. Um, uh, let's see, what can I do here? Is that working? Sorry, I felt like I had a, a, a difficulty there. Um, okay, there we go. Um, okay, so here's the latest um, state reporting as of uh, last night. Um, and again, this is a map that's probably familiar to all of you. Um, but we did witness last night um, just kind of a statewide lockdown in California, which, um, you know, again, I think many people view that as sort of a, like a health measure. People like me view that as like a, a choking off of the seventh largest economy in the world. If we just look at the GDP of California, um, it's just not clear how that's going to be 
going to be sustained. So we, we saw one in Argentina. Um, and then I guess just this morning, um, we're seeing this in New York City, um, which I guess is being talked about right now. And up until now, um, you know, President Trump has applauded these measures. Um, I don't, uh, I don't, um, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not going to be critical of those applauding. This is a very confusing time. But that's what we're seeing right now. Um, uh, forgive me, Lauren, are you still seeing my slides change? I am not seeing your slides change. Okay, so that is a problem. I, I keep feeling that there's a problem here. <laughs> so you're only seeing, okay, I don't know why it keeps. Okay. So let me see if I can fix this. Forgive me, you know, I'm, I've been doing this all week teaching. I <laughs> think I got this straight. Okay. All right. Are we seeing this? Are we back on? We are seeing today, March 20th, okay. announced okay. state reports. I'm, I'm having trouble changing the slides when it's in the slideshow mode. So I'm going to just keep it here. It's a little That's distracting. Fine. I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep it here. Yes. Um, hopefully that will be big enough for you. Um, Right. Okay. So let's see. I was, I was here. Right. So everybody's in lockdown and it's going to get worse. Okay. So <laughs> you all know this. Um, so uh, let's see. Okay. So let's look about the economics of the situation. Um, we are already starting to see things that look as bad as, you know, going, stretching all the way back to 1980s. We're going to start, we are going to see worse. This is, this is the beginning. Um, we're just a couple of weeks into this situation. Um, Right, the travel industry is just one industry, but you know, obviously we're talking a lot about the restaurants, the bars, the service industries. I mean, essentially all the service and contact industries, which is a huge part of our economy um, to begin with. Um, and you know, it's funny, it took, it was a bit of a lag. It took, a, in, my, in my universe, it took about you know, 10 to 14 days for this to start trickling up. Um, but this is gonna be absolutely devastating. Um, so these layoffs and cuts. And so I, I basically wanted to give you two Two case studies. So I have two case studies for you um, because I think, given the universe that you're in, I'm in an academic universe. I don't, um, I don't make the case very often, one way or the other. But um, I've got basically a firm side and a, and a household side case for you, just to kind of illustrate. Maybe this is the kind of thing that you can use in your professional life. Um, my brother's business this is my brother, my baby brother. Um, so he was a, um, gosh, I don't even know, like a, like a. He's a graduate of University of Dallas. I can't remember the year he graduated, but he basically left college. He's 34 years old and, um, you know, lived on pennies and, you know, ate out of tin cans for years and years and uh, basically built this um, indoor rock climbing gym. And just re just earlier, um, earlier this year that he was, they, they were announced his, his rock climbing gym was announced as sort of the developer of the year. Um, where they are now is just an amazing transformation from the very first gym. And, you know, it's like any entrepreneurial story in this country. They're going to be very, very typical. These are people who took risks to begin a business at the end of the 2009-2010 crisis when nobody was building anything. And that's when they, so they're 10 years in, they just hit their 10-year anniversary. Um, it's basically the first year they've turned a, a real profit. So 10 years in. They finally thought, you know, we can stop worrying, <laughs> you know. Uh, so what happened? Well, these guys are, this is one of my brothers. He, he does this with my other brother. Um, basically, you know, they're way more conservative than a lot of their, their entrepreneurial peers. They have maybe 
four to six weeks worth of cash to, to run things in a shutdown. Obviously, climbing gyms like other fitness centers are all closed down. Um, he's already applied for small business loans. He's already taken steps to see if he can mortgage his house or take a home equity line if they need to. He'll basically sell everything that he has to keep his business, right? Because it's the only thing he has built in his life. It's the only thing as a professional 30-something that he's worked at, right? So that is at risk and it will, it will not it will not stay, right? It will not stay. And the worst thing is that there will not be anyone to buy that business when he has to fold. And that is starting to sound like the picture of the depression that I'm sort of saying will happen if we can't figure out a way to, um, we'll just say, we have to think about a new meme, like a flatten the curve for, for the business problem, right? We need to mitigate what's happening with the businesses. So that's a, that's a sort of a firm side problematic um, yeah, I mean, he'll be he'll he'll sell the, the shoes off of his feet, you know, before this before he gives this up. That's all he has. He's got nothing else. He's done this nonstop since the day he graduated college. Here's another case. Uh, one of my closest friends, she and her husband made a decision to invest in a vacation property in Sanibel Island. I'm sure they're like many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans. They they manage this and they keep it around by renting it out. No one's traveling and no one's renting right now. So um, they can maybe pay for this for a couple of months if nobody's booking it. By the late summer, they will have to sell that condo. Um, but there won't be buyers for that condo by late summer, right? So they might sell for pennies on the dollar, but then they'd still be facing a, you know, potentially a personal bankruptcy. Um, so this is the nature of systemic effects. This is systemic collapse, which is what we could be looking at, right? Because everyone in that position will be in exactly the right. It's not individuals or states, it's everybody. Um, so we're, you know, so it'll be businesses, it'll be households. Um, and that's in some sense to add to this, for this previous point about the restaurant workers, the bartenders, like the hourly wage, when we already know that very bottom 20% of the, of the wage earners in the country, I mean, they're in trouble. They're gonna be in trouble. They're the first to be let go. Um, so, okay, so that's sort of to set the picture. We're starting to see, you know, policymakers thinking about how to fix this. Um, I've been sort of looking at some of these plans, um, you know, but when we're thinking about uh, personal problems as large as the ones we're thinking about, um, these smaller $600 to $1,000 cash payments to households, they don't look big enough to solve the problem, right? They don't look big enough. Um, there are other things we're, we're thinking about. A lot of people are thinking about Bill Duper at the St. Louis Fed has some really interesting um, comments about some of the things that fiscal policy can do and some of the bills that should be out there on the consumer and household side. Increasing um, unemployment insurance replacement rates um, you know, can help for a little bit of time. It's important to mention that not all of the people who are suffering without paychecks right now are actually unemployed. So for many people, they're furloughed. And if you're furloughed and you're not, in some sense, looking for a job, you're, you aren't typically uh, eligible for unemployment. With th these things can all be changed, but these are sort of the parameters. Bill Duper is also recommending um, temporarily removing penalties for early IRA withdrawals, you know, ways to get cash into the hands of people who are going without incomes for long periods of time. Um, and these, you know, we need to get more cash to people than a few hundred bucks, right? Uh, we just, just need to do that. Um, so that's what we're seeing now on the small business side to sort of pick up on comments about my brother's business and similar businesses. 
um, you know, this is just one of these sorts of things, you know, these recommendations, besides the lockdowns, these recommendations and avoiding eating and drinking at bars, you know, recommendations to avoid social gatherings in groups of 10. Um, best estimates that I can find are that about 50% of small businesses have less than two weeks of cash, emergency cash, um, right? So they have no revenue coming in. They still have to pay rent. They still have to pay utility bills. They pay all, all sorts of things. Um, they, again, they'll fire their least important um, employees. That'll be the first thing that will, will go because, right, you can't fire your, your rent payment. Um, so 15 days. So, you know, we're kind of getting close to that. Um, my brother's business is eight days into a shutdown. Um, we've got about a week. So, you know, this sort of needs to be urgently in the attention sphere of anybody that's working in the public policy arena. I think it's trickling in. I think it is getting there. Um, but there's not going to be an easy answer. The biggest problem, of course, as I've alluded to, is the massive credit crunch, which is going to occur when all these businesses need loans at the same time. The savvy people cashed out. Uh, so my brothers, for instance, they, when that first, in that first stock market fall, they, they cashed out at that point just to have cash on hand. They're, they were a bit more forward looking, I think, than, than others. Um, you know, my brother will say all the time, if, if we're on the edge, everybody else is worse. You know, he's, he, so he knows where he is positionally. Um, there'll be an enormous credit and the credit will not be there. Um, Obviously, if we can find ways to get get more credit and loans to businesses, and some of these um, some of these proposals we're seeing are are focusing just on this, this is the kind of thing we're going to have to do. But you know, it doesn't. Um, you know, some businesses are already on the edge, and when, when and if they reopen, um, especially restaurant business, there are very very thin margins in the restaurant business. When and if they reopen, um, it's an open question whether they can carry the kinds of loans that they might be able to get. So, you know, I, I know I'm going to just sound very depressing here. But this is this is what we're this is what we're looking at. Um, yesterday night's um, editorial briefing um, from the Wall Street Journal is basically making the same point, right? So nobody can ultimately safeguard public health for very long at the cost of economic health. And I kind of want to reiterate my earlier point. This isn't about sort of, you know, the economists and the cold hearted people want to keep the money flowing and all the good people want to keep people healthy. That's not the dilemma here. It's that we're not separate groups and the resources we need to keep the health uh, crisis in, let's just say it's best possible shape come from our economy. And if we completely tank the economy with these really kind of aggressive shutdowns, um, it's not clear to me that we will be able to pay for the new hospitals that we need to build, right? We need to, we need to acquisition more ventilators. We need to get more respirators to the hospitals. We need to build new hospitals. The cost of building many new hospitals and increasing is actually a very small fraction of the amount of fiscal stimulus money that is being considered. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. We can build hospitals. I'm not saying it's stimulus or, or hospitals, but I am saying that uh, we are going to need economic resources to deal with the health consequences of the virus. And we will not have those economic resources to deal with the consequences of the virus if we shut down the economy. And that's, that's just a plain fact. I'm not in charge of making that decision, but I don't think I would shut down the economy. Um, just everybody, we need everybody at their top of their game right now. We need our epidemiologists at the top of their game, but a fraction of our epidemiologists are going to be busy selling their condos. 
I mean, I'm not trying to put this in, but uh, we need people at the top of their game. And so if the economy is tanking, nobody's going to be at the top of their game. So that's kind of my very optimistic view of the lay of the land right now. So I've kind of got five quick points to run through, um, and then we can just do questions and, and reflect a little bit. Um, I guess I've made the first point rather clear. Um, I, I've, I've kind of uh, crossed out recession here. This is, um, we're really looking at a depression. We're, we're, we're fast approaching depression um, circumstances. The Wall Street Journal editorial would say, says for instance, in a, um, in a standard recession, like the one with the last recession that we had, we're looking at losing about 5% of GDP per year. But what we're looking at now with these kinds of widespread lockdowns and shutdowns is something more in the order of 5% a month. So it's like an, like it's, it's not a linear order of magnitude. It's, it's approaching more of an exponential order of magnitude. Um, and that's, a, again, that's sort of the nature of systemic collapse, right? It's that everybody has to sell their condo and there's no buyers. Credit dries up, buyers disappear all the businesses have to shut down. So when you're thinking about that, what you're really looking at in a depression, these numbers, like it just sounds like a number, 5% of the GDP disappears per month, right? It really is the, it's the analogical equivalent of, of actually bombing cities and assets, right? These are assets that have a lot of value and then they just have less value. They have, or they have no value. You actually just, the value goes away you have to read that's what these numbers track we see these charts with lines going up and down but it's the moral equivalent of these things being essentially bombed out um, that's how bad they are um, there's not much we can do about it systemic collapse is a very bad thing we need to be a thousand percent certain we must lock down the country before we lock down the country and i'm not convinced i mean i'm reading as much you know probably you guys are reading everything at your hands on I'm reading everything I get my hands on. I'm not yet convinced that we have the kind of certainty. We don't even know who has this virus in the United States, right? I mean, we just, that's like, to be perfectly honest, we don't know. We have cases, but we don't know what the denominator is. Uh, so, so kind of moving on, sort of quick, quick, this is probably, you know, I put this together very quickly. I don't necessarily mean that we, you know, question the CDC existentially um, or to be, but you know, the CDC can, at its best, you know, deliver a certain kind of intelligence about what, what we're thinking, what we're looking at, what we're likely to look at. What the CDC cannot do is um, think about the, the broader, how, like, right, you, you basically pose them the question, you know, how do we mitigate the virus? How do we ensure the optimal health? Is, and they're going to just answer that question in terms of the medical um, perspective. We, we shouldn't, we'd be, we should be a little worried about delegating to the CDC the sort of ultimate kind of question of the social good. Um, that is why we, why we elect our wonderful officials. Um, economist Robin Hansen is getting a lot of uh, talk in economic circles. Um, economist Robin, he's a health economist. He's been talking about the importance of perhaps approaching this in a little bit of a different way, deliberately exposing younger people who have much lower fatality rates to kind of uh, develop more herd immunity. Again, I'm not here to propose any of these things, but I'm here to propose that there are a lot of alternative thoughts that need to be on the table, possibly before, you know, absolute lockdown, which again, I think leads to things which are very, very dire. Um, 
obviously we cannot track what's going on without baselines. We have no baselines. In other words, we don't know what fatality rates are. We don't know what infection rates are because we simply don't know who's been exposed and who has this disease. We cannot underscore enough the problem of not being able to test Americans right now. So coming from um, the Asian populations, um, Taiwan, Taiwan's example is really very interesting, um, and also China. But uh, the fact, uh, so basically you, what you've got to do is keep your economy going, but also couple that with aggressive, aggressive testing and then quarantining for people who are exposed. So that can be done, but of course it can't be done if you don't know who's exposed or who has the disease. We have to fix this problem. And frankly, if you look back, I mean, the CDC had a role to play um, in that failure of, of obtaining and developing good testing, um, that is their job. That is the one thing the CDC is supposed to be doing, is they're supposed to be aware of these things before we are. They were well aware of it, but they kind of seem to have, have possibly bungled the development of our testing. Um, so I don't question the CDC, but at least from the policymaking perspective, um, we have to include kind of a, a greater, larger picture. Um, so that's the second point. The third point is, beyond sort of this, this side or these points are meant to sort of get us a little bit outside of the, the questions of um, fiscal stimulus. I mean, stimulus can only go so far. We certainly have an ongoing, we had an ongoing conversation among monetary policy experts prior to this crisis about whether or not monetary policy is already becoming increasingly ineffective at the kinds of things it wants to do. This has to do with how close we're getting to zero interest rates, negative interest rates. Um, you know, what tools does the Fed still have to affect the economy? I'm not here to say there, there's nothing left, uh, but that was already a pretty thriving uh, debate among monetary policy experts prior to this crisis. This crisis has pushed us a lot closer to that question. There are things that fiscal policy can and should do and will do, certainly um, some things that monetary policy can do. But I think the bigger picture, again, is to sort of prod people anyone on this call who's connected to offices where we're thinking through these things about creative ways to get things open again. So, which is not the same as stimulus, right? We wanna get things open again. What can we open safely? Maybe, maybe we can open some things safely. Uh, and so it's in some sense, this is like a two-way conversation we wanna have with the CDC. We may need to go back to the CDC and say, suppose these are the 10 things we can't close. What's the best thing we can do to mitigate the spread of this disease or these spikes in intensive care, for instance, given that we, we, can't, we have to take this off the table? Um, I don't know what this is, but um, that would be a two-way conversation with the medical experts. I'm in no way suggesting we shunt the medical experts from the table, <clears throat> but that the conversation has to be two-way. And I think, frankly, kind of moving into probably my last slide for you, um, actually, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll... Uh, well, I'll sort of, I'll hold that thought for the last slide. Um, I'll, I'll hold that slide for the last, that thought for the last slide. So I also want to mention, because my job here is, again, to think outside of the policy universe and maybe bring some new things to the table for you, um, that this is probably a nice time uh, to talk about um, and perhaps think about ways to incentivize free market healthcare solutions, especially for the elderly. We have been totally behind the curve on this. We know we have an aging population. We have a really kind of a, you know, we have, in my opinion, the greatest health care in the, in the world. And yet it sort of, it, it bumps along um, with, with a very sort of um, 
what we say like stultified way of 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 working essentially we've choked off all the price signals in the healthcare market because everything's negotiated by third parties right so no one knows what a helicopter ride should cost nobody knows what you know emergency services should cost nobody knows what it should cost to amputate a toe there's no actual price signals and that we know that that's not good so although i just said that it is the job of the executive office and the white house staff to actually just sort of help think about the broader context and not simply the cdc um, it is certainly not the job of the White House to plan for the long-term supply questions of critical services. This falls on entrepreneurs in the healthcare space and anybody else thinking about the problem. So I guess I'm saying there's a, you know, this whole, you know, idea of not wasting a crisis. This probably is a good time to think about reminding everyone that there are other ways to solve some of these problems and that possibly some of these problems may have, may have been easier to handle if we were more nimble, if our, if our healthcare delivery systems were more nimble, um, you know, Medicaid is not nimble, <laughs> just to put that bluntly. Um, the shortages of doctors and nurses, we know that they're there. We've had a, a critical nursing shortage for a couple of decades now. Um, and we could fix this, just like we have teaching shortages. We could fix this, um, but we have to pay people more. Uh, and that means kind of getting outside of this uh, kind of weird universe of um, non-market prices. And the last thing, of course, is a good time to talk about the perils of an aging population uh, and to continue to talk about um, ways of supporting and incentivizing or just not de-incentivizing family growth, right? And I know, again, this has been an agenda item recently, and it's something that lots of good people are thinking about, but that we need to keep doing that. Um, so going back to my last point, uh, you know, just to bring in some thoughts about churches and faith life, um, I wonder if, you know, the sorts of things I wonder about in my own, you know, little cabin where we're waiting things out here, what I wonder about is the extent to which this kind of, what seems to me an, an over-priority of the CDC's messages and the, the again, not because I'm a callous person, but because I, I, I worry we cannot, we cannot care for the sick ultimately if we're all going to go into a massive, massive free fall on the economic side. But I wonder if some of that over priority is because we have really steadily moved away from the kinds of, um, let's just say, habits of talking about sickness and suffering and death. And we have this aging population. We have, right, okay, we can joke about the boomers, probably some a couple of boomers on this call. Um, but uh, we aren't doing this very much. And this is, I think, the role that churches have to start playing in this crisis. Um, I do think the nation is starving for thinking about how to prepare for death, how to face sickness. Um, and then we think about the economic suffering. I told a friend of mine, if my brother weren't a man of faith and he does lose that business, um, he, he'd become a mental health patient very quickly. Um, but because of his faith, I expect that he can weather that. It'll be the worst thing to weather in his life, right? But uh, this is where the role that churches are going to have to play increasingly, and I think it's wonderful. It's it's um, it's like the it's the it's the comparative advantage. Churches can do this, and we can teach people how not to be afraid of sickness and death and suffering. Um, I hope we can make it better. I hope we can find creative policy ways to make this better. Um, I do want to say that I think that churches should respect and obey the legitimate orders and the recommendations. I'm not here to argue that we should not close churches. Um, but we do need to think about creative uh, ways to get, you know, get, again, what, what St. Joe's does uh, to get those services. 
um, and the pastors and the, and the ministers in this country to get them to people. Um, we've seen these pictures of drive-by confessions, you know, this sort of thing. And I expect we will see more of this and this is wonderful. Um, so that's the best thing I can, that's the most optimistic thing I can say. And I will, I will stop there.